From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, I'm bringing you the final episode in our financial impact series. If you've missed any of our episodes on how COVID-19 is impacting hospitals, payers, or ambulatory surgery centers, make sure to give those a listen. For the final episode in the series, I want to tackle how the pandemic is impacting physician practices. And to have that conversation, I've brought my colleague, Sarah Hostetter. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ray. How you doing today? I'm good. How are you holding up? Holding up? All right. I have no sense of time anymore. I think it's week 10 or something, um, but, but otherwise doing okay. Yeah, same here, I would say. Um, it is a Monday, I am told, so... This is true. It is the beginning of a, it is the beginning of a week. Although I'm not sure that we can tell day to day. Well, Sarah, I, I wanted to bring you into this conversation because you are one of advisory board's experts when it comes to not just medical groups, but in particular, independent medical groups. Is that the kind of practice that we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, we're talking about independent physician practices, which in and of itself doesn't always mean something. So let me explain what I mean when I say independent physician practices. I'm talking about physician-owned and physician-led practices. So these are single and multi-specialty medical groups that are employed by themselves, not employed by a hospital. When we're talking about the types of independent practices, especially those that are going to be hit by COVID, what are some of those examples of independence we're going to be talking about today? Great question. So a lot of the news coverage you've probably seen on independent practices is talking about these smaller practices. So your two-doc practice in a small town, really any single specialty physician practice with less than maybe 10, 15 docs. Those are the ones that are being hit the hardest right now because of COVID. But that's only one type of independent physician practice. So you have some mid-sized groups that are usually single specialty, you know, radiology, cardiology, oncology. Those are some examples of the types of groups there. And then you actually have a good sub-segment that are these large multi-specialty groups. These are maybe 50, 100 docs, something like that, even bigger. And they are the ones who have usually more access to capital. They have diversified revenue streams because we're talking about multi-specialty practices. So they're not all invested in one practice. So a huge range here. Yeah. And I, and I think that what you're describing is why it's actually so difficult to wrap our arms around how the pandemic is actually impacting independent physician groups. Because as you said, it can range from a single physician practice in a small town to a practice that's several thousand physicians in size. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the, the landscape looks a lot different depending on which of those, which ends of that spectrum you're at. And I want to keep hearing from you how the pandemic is impacting the different types of physician practices. But for now, I want you to ground me in what's happening in the short term. How is COVID financially impacting physician groups right now? Yeah, so the biggest impact is that their volumes are down, especially if you consider things like 
preventative care or electives, really any outpatient procedure or visit that isn't necessary to keep me moving and to keep me seemingly healthy right now, I'm not going to the doctor to get that type of visit. And so the volumes are down kind of across the board, especially if you're thinking about referrals-driven specialties. Hmm. If you think about some of our our specialty services that depend on me first going to the primary care doctor to then get a referral to go somewhere else. If I'm not going to my primary care doctor, I'm not getting in the door with another doctor. So there's almost this ripple effect to the specialties. And Sarah, can you put that reduction in volumes into the context of physician group financials? Physician practices across the board saw about a 60% average decrease in patient volumes, especially in that first month after COVID hit. And that corresponded with a 55% average decrease in revenue since the beginning of that public health emergency. Hmm. So when you look at the revenue they're actually bringing in, which a lot of that is kind of funding the month-to-month operating costs of the practice, they're seeing those numbers go down. In addition, you're seeing that play out because groups are laying off and furloughing staff. So we have about 48% of the groups who have temporarily furloughed staff and others who have even permanently had to lay off staff as a result. Hmm. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about the staffing in a moment. But before we get to that, I'm curious, Christopher came back on the podcast to share that the financial picture actually was starting to look a little bit better for hospitals because of some of the federal and state relief packages that had considerably helped out some of the challenges that hospitals were facing. What does all of that money mean for physician groups? Unfortunately, physician groups didn't benefit from those stimulus relief packages as much as hospitals did. Some did get a small payment from the provider relief fund, but the majority of those funds really went to hospitals. Others were small enough to be eligible for some of the small business loan programs, so the Paycheck Protection Loan being the biggest one, but that's only for groups who are smaller than 500 employees. And the other thing is that that's a loan. So whereas the provider fund that some of the hospitals benefited from is a, a payment that they get to keep, the, the, a lot of the other mechanisms that independent practices are getting are loan-based mechanisms. So the Paycheck Protection Program, one example, if you use 75% of that loan to actually bring back your staff and pay your staff, you're going to get that loan forgiven. However, if you use it to other things or not enough of it towards your staff, you actually do have to pay it back at a 1% interest rate. And this comes back to some of the challenges we talked about at the beginning, that the physician landscape just isn't homogenous. So some of those really small groups could get small business loans, but if you are a practice of, say, 100 doctors, you you couldn't. Yeah, that's right, right. And I think all of this brings me back to the obvious questions around the state of the workforce. In a world where margins are slim and there's this bottleneck for revenue coming in the front door, physician groups are going to have to start looking at costs, which is really tricky when, what, 85% of group costs are tied up in labor. What's your take on this? Yeah, I think you've got two real labor pools that you're looking at here. On the one hand, you have your staff. A lot of the staff were furloughed. Maybe they're working from home and groups have started to see some sort of economies of scale and maybe that they don't need to be staffed as kind of the levels that they were pre-COVID. And then you have your doctors. Physicians are a a, a little bit of a different story. 
the common conception here is that physicians may seek employment after this. You know, you've been in an independent group and you maybe had furloughed, you maybe had to take a pay cut as a result of this, and the health system might seem like a more stable employer. But what's really interesting when you think about independent physician practices is that a lot of the doctors are shareholders, they're partners in the group. So what most groups did when they thought about some of these furloughs and layoffs is they actually went to the doctors and said, okay, who's willing to temporarily take a furlough to keep our group going long term? Who's willing to take a pay cut to keep our group going long term? And so a lot of the things, these these entrepreneurial elements of the independent physician practice are what really drove these physicians into private practice. And a lot of groups were able to capitalize on that entrepreneurial spirit in order to kind of weather the COVID storm. And potentially remain independent even after it's all over. Yeah, that's their their, their hope. We'll be right back with more Radio Advisory after this short break. Hi, I'm Chris with the Radio Advisory team. On behalf of everyone at Advisory Board, thank you for everything you're doing to battle COVID-19. We want to help you celebrate the bright spots. Perhaps you've been amazed at how your teams, your peers, or your leaders are supporting you. Or perhaps a patient's words reminded you of why you do what you do. What bright spots are you seeing? We want to hear from you. Share your story at advisory.com slash thank you and view our message of thanks. We don't know how long this is all going to last, but I'm curious, what are some of the key variables that you're watching that would impact the financial viability of physician groups over the long term? I think there's some pre-COVID factors that set groups up better kind of going into to this public health crisis. One I mentioned early on was multi-specialty groups. If you have a diversified revenue stream, you might see different parts of your organization being hit harder or less hard and be able to make up for some of the volumes losses in a different specialty. Another big one is revenue stores. Some physician practices retain a percentage of physician earnings to reinvest in the group. So they have these kind of capital stores to be able to use or draw on in a situation like this. Groups who had that cash reserved are probably going to be better off than the groups who didn't. And the last thing is that a lot of independent practices have at least some portion, if not a large portion of their revenue tied up to value-based contracting. If you're thinking about keeping a patient healthy in the long term versus a single fee-for-service revenue, you're going to invest in some of the things that help you weather this COVID storm, like telehealth. They also may not have seen the the same hits to their fee-for-service revenue as they had more contracts tied up in value-based care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that makes sense. But those are also a lot of factors that were already pretty squarely in the medical group leader's control. I'm curious... What are the variables that are maybe outside of the physician leader's control? Yeah, a a few things I'm watching right now. One is how quickly states are reopening and for what. We assume that states would be quicker to open ambulatory outpatient type procedures and, and visits. That hasn't been the case in every state. Some states are actually opening the hospital side of the equation first, which is a challenge for the independent groups in those states. 
The other big one I'm tracking is how much the first wave bleeds into the presumed second wave. So if we assume that there's going to be a second wave of COVID, when that happens is going to impact how these independent physician practices rebound. So if they're able to rebound some volume, store up some of that revenue over the summer, that might protect them from the presumed second wave. If we have that second wave coming sooner and volumes haven't rebounded, it's going to be more challenging to survive that second wave. So Sarah, I actually want to ask you a pretty blunt question. Are physician groups going to be able to weather the storm financially? I think realistically, we're going to be looking at a buyer's market. We're going to have this power dynamic that shifts in favor of of hospitals, of payers, of private equity firms, of all these people who have over the years been investing in physicians. But I do think it's wrong to assume that this is going to be a free-for-all. It goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, that the independent physician landscape is really heterogeneous. For some of the smaller single specialty groups, they're the most likely to be on the market after this. Your mid-size group, it it could go either way. And those medium to large-size multi-specialty groups, they're probably going to weather the storm and maybe even become acquiring entities themselves. So let's say you're one of those groups that isn't actually able to weather the storm. What advice would you give to them as they're thinking about their decisions to partner or perhaps even be acquired all out? So I think it's really easy to get swayed by a partner who offers a high valuation, who offers kind of a good upfront investment to the group, probably even more tempting now that your revenue is lower. But it's most important to find a partner who fits well with your group. So who's aligned with those entrepreneurial values we talked about before? Who's aligned with any moves you'd make toward value-based care? And since I'm being blunt, I'm curious of the potential partners, who is maybe at the bottom of their list? In an honest moment, hospitals and health systems. You're talking about groups who are fiercely independent and highly entrepreneurial and want to maintain that independence moving forward. Sarah, I appreciate you coming on the podcast so much. I feel like we could talk for hours about this, and we'll probably have you back for that exact reason. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one question. What advice would you give to healthcare executives this week? So my first thought here is for independent physician practice executives, because that's who I work with day in and day out. But I think this advice is relevant regardless of your healthcare setting. And that's the importance of agility and forward planning. In the short term, it's thinking about the second wave. What did we learn from this wave and what does that mean for how we're going to respond if this happens again? So these are things like, how do we handle when our volumes decline again? How do we think about furloughs, pay cuts, and staffing changes for that next wave? But I think it's also even bigger than that. So now is the time to be thinking about what do you want to change for the long haul? How are we going to integrate telehealth and our long-term care delivery strategy? Is your physician compensation model really working for you? In the case of independent groups, is it allowing you to reinvest and save for a rainy day? And as hard as it is, do you really need to be staffed at the level you are? Are there some economies of scale you can get through centralizing? And then lastly, 
even your physical space. So if you've integrated telehealth, centralization, you have different scheduling approaches, do you actually need all of those office locations you have? And is the space in those locations working for you? These are some of the long-term questions that some of the most progressive organizations that I work with are tackling right now. Every part of the industry is suffering to some extent financially, but the winners here are, are absolutely going to be the ones who are thinking about being agile and, and changing their practices for the better. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to our financial impact series. If you missed any of our previous episodes, make sure to check those out. And here at Radio Advisory, we're going to keep experimenting with different series. So next week, tune into a special series that we're doing on leadership. Over the next several weeks, each episode will focus on a topic that healthcare leaders are likely to be thinking about right now as they steer their organizations through COVID-19. And as always, remember, we're here to help. I also made some donuts recently. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, Sarah's quite the baker. It was abnormal and highly delicious.